Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how to truly live. You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Please turn to Ecclesiastes 12. Today's text comes from the final six verses. This is, right now, the end of our series in Ecclesiastes. We will read from these final verses, then I'll pray, and by God's power I'll preach. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. This is God's word. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for who you are. We know that our right response is supposed to be true fear that results in love for you and obedience to your commandments. Lord, we ask for help this morning to see your text clearly. We thank you that you have given us your word, both through the prophets and wisdom men and, and, and kings and shepherds, most importantly, through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask now that you would open our hearts to be soft, our ears to be open to hear, and that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers. We thank you for your great grace to deliver to us Jesus Christ, and through him we can know you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who continues to work in us. I pray that you be active this morning, equipping the saints, preparing us for the work of ministry. It's in Jesus' name we pray. There are two great realities that we find in this passage. Now, there's certainly more than that, but I just I want to point these out. Two things that must fundamentally shape our lives. The first one is that God is. The second one is that God has spoken. Two foundational truths that we must grasp, and actually it must shape our lives, that God is, and that God has spoken. In the uh, Robin Williams movie, Hook, some of you may remember this. It's that silly movie that revisits the story of Peter Pan. He kind of comes back and gets thrown back into Neverland. Um, In that movie, there's this moment that I sometimes quote to myself where someone comes face to face with the reality that will change everything that they do. Uh, The protagonist, Peter Pan, of course, 
He remembers how to fly. He remembers you're supposed to think good thoughts and he starts to raise up off the ground and he falls, but then he like remembers again and so he begins to fly around and now he's going all over Neverland and the lost boys are stunned. They can't believe he, he really is able to do this. This is the, the real guy. He, and so he goes zooming up and down, crowing up and down the, and bringing all the lost boys together. And the scene kind of culminates as all of them are rejoicing around him and just like kind of singing his praises and they're there standing and everything goes quiet because the boy's leader, Rufio, is at the back of the crowd. And it's almost as though a corridor opens between Peter Pan and Rufio. At this point, Rufio steps forward with a sword in hand. Everything becomes silent. The crowd opens up and sees what will happen. The tension is thick at this point. At this moment, Rufio responds by dropping to his knees, holding up the sword and saying, you are the pan. Now, that's silly. I get it. But do you see the whole scene, what's going on there? He's confronted with a reality that changes everything for him. He drops his jealousy, he drops all of his rights, and he becomes a follower and has reverence for this person, the pan. He goes on to be Peter's right-hand man and fights back, of course, against the villainous Captain Hook. But at that moment, when Rufio saw who Peter actually was, everything changed for him. He no longer held him in contempt. He no longer was disrespectful or jealous. He could truly see who he was, and he responds with loyalty, admiration, and a fierce adherence to all the plans of Peter. Now, why do I tell that story? Now, you might think it's because I'm trying to reference early 90s movies that helped me relive my childhood, but that's only part of it. Um, I start here because Rufio is brought to a place where he sees reality, and it fundamentally changes his view of himself and how he will live the rest of his life. In Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14, what we just read, we are shown two things that must fundamentally shape who we are and how we're supposed to live. Number one is that God is, that God exists. But then second, that God has actually spoken. He's communicated with his creatures. Now, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, and maybe you're just joining us to kind of fulfill a curiosity or someone invited you, we're, we're very glad you're here. And maybe you're somewhere in the decision stage. You're not really sure about this Jesus, not really sure what to say. May I tell you right now, God, your creator, the person who put you together in your mother's womb, God is speaking to you right now. Right now. That's not like a clever joke. He is speaking to you. And not only through me, certainly I'm a pastor and I'm ready to preach here, but he is speaking to you through the word of God. This is God's communication to us. The very thing that we know and feel and long for is here saying, listen to my words. He's calling you here today to hear the truth that must shake you to the very core and cause you to live in light of eternity. He's the one, by the way, from, from chapter 3, who placed eternity into your heart. He's the one that made it so, so that you know there's something else, more than just these 70 or 80 years here. There's something else going on. He is the one that now speaks. 
And may I call you with sobriety to listen to him. Today, we don't look out into a dark space, that unknown realm of eternity so much as we did last week. But this week, we consider the one who made eternity and the unknown realm, who is the king over all of it. We've come to the end of the book here, but also switching authors. I don't know if you noticed that here. Uh, the preacher, uh, we, we've kind of heard his final words in verse 8. That was the end of his discussion. We've covered his conclusion last week, and it's very great. Remember, he's saying, since we're all going to grow old and die, we should rejoice in the life we've been given, remembering our Creator as our Lord. But now here in verse 9, the narrator comes back on the scene. Uh, he'll, he'll kind of wrap the entire book up and give us, in a sense, a commentary. His thoughts on what Koheleter, the preacher, has said. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, throughout the book, the preacher has claimed to be wise. He said this. He's been very wise, and we can plainly, plainly see that he is a great man of wisdom. But here, the person putting this book together, you could call him a compiler, an editor, he's still certainly a divine author, but what I mean by that is a human author given inspired words by God. But this guy is bringing this together and he is making comments. He's saying that the life work of this person is one that deeply cares about producing the best possible book that he can. It wasn't flippant. And, and look, it's not for the sake of great wisdom and big words and being a well-known writer. This is a real temptation for many academically-minded people. They produce many big words and lots of books, and man, they look really smart. You sound really smart when you use big words. It seems like you must be a person of great significance if you can like, publish many lengthy books. That's a big deal. You seem like there's someone that we should kind of look up to, but that's not what the preacher did at all. Rather, it says that the preacher taught the people. You see what his goal was? It was not to sound smart, but rather to actually communicate and teach the people so that they might change. His concern was not for prestige, but for making a difference in his audience. There's no pretense in his work then. He wants to figure out the best way that he can to communicate the most foundational truths for living a life before God the right way. Now, maybe you're a teacher. I think we can already like, see some application right away. Maybe you're a teacher or in some position of knowing and dispersing things. Why do you do it? Do you have the same heart here as the preacher who actually wants to serve his neighbor, love his neighbor, and have them be able to walk away changed? Or is it possible that you want to look like a well-groomed, well-put-together professional in some way? No, it's distracting for me too. It's okay. But let me get your attention again if I can. Why do you do the things that you're called to do in the work that you've been given? Is it actually to love God and love your neighbor? Or is it possibly that you produce these things that might help your neighbor a little bit, but end up making you look really good? Just ask us about our own motivation in our heart. Now, as we see here in verse 9, he has spent his life weighing, studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. 
Now, this was not like some sort of cut and paste from some of his research that he and some of his buddies did. No, no, no. This was a lifelong pursuit of discovery, then of experimentation, and then of analysis, and then despair, and all these different things. He collated, he analyzed, and then he produces something, get this, that's beautiful, that would guide people through this absurd world. As an author, he was both an expert, precise writer with the, the expertise of one who was at the top of their game, but also one who was an artist. Verse 10 says, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. To be honest, this is what I want to do. <laughs> I want to emulate this guy, especially as your pastor and preacher. What I'm trying to do regularly, whether it's crafting sermons or perhaps teaching doctrine or even in counsel, what I want to do is communicate to you so that you might know in a winsome, memorable, helpful way the truths that should set your life. That's what he does, though. He's successful at it. He's one that has done this thing. This word delight is, is perfect. He's literally saying that the words being used bring pleasure to the hearer. They are memorable. They're pleasant. They're even words that you might want to memorize because you can then actually put them in words that are so well put, you rejoice. This happens even me with me and my wife sometimes. We, we hear a, a song. We're like, ooh, they just said that right. Like that, that, I, I've always wanted to be able to say that, but like they capture that whole thing beautifully. That's what he does with the entire book. And so, as I quote one author, he said, he's kind of the patron saint of good writers. He's excellent at his work. This is not about only saying words that people like either. Let me just make sure you understand that, this idea of delight. He's not tickling ears or scratching ears of people who just want to hear the things that they like. That's the thing that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy. No, he makes that clear as we go on. These words are ones that he wrote uprightly. They are words of truth. Now, you understand this. He said this back in 729. God has made man upright, but they have out many, sought out many schemes. He has made man to operate properly before God so that he understands. Yet man tries his best to develop all these different ways of understanding the universe. He says the word schemes, if you remember that. He's saying this writer is commending right things to us instead of more and more schemes that he's adding on. He's saying things that correspond not to theory or philosophy, but rather things that are true, things that are real. Uh, let me just ask you, what, what more could you want, honestly? What more could you want than reality, than the truth? I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go forward, but I think some of us love to speculate. Some of us love to just keep asking questions. Some of us kind of love to be the guy that is, asks question after question and people are like, I, I really don't know. That's a great question. As though there's some virtue in being able to ask the most questions. What are we after? We love to be the one who makes everyone else think, wow, I didn't think about asking more questions. It seems really smart, academic, a very provocative thing to do. But do not forget that we are after truth. We want to be able to pin our lives on something, not a bunch of unanswered questions, guys. 
We want to know the truth, the reality. And he says he's given us the truth to stand on. We are after the truth, not a clever study mechanism. In verse 9 and 10, the preacher is being commended for perfectly teaching the people the truth about life. But I would ask, why should you and I care about beautiful writing? I mean, I mean, there are a lot of really good, masterfully written books that I could recommend to you. Why should you read Ecclesiastes? As he moves into verse 11 and 12, you'll see he kind of steps back and he looks at us, the reader, and he makes two statements that help us answer that question. Why should we read Ecclesiastes? Or I'll say this, why should we listen and obey Ecclesiastes? Verse 11 is a proverb. It says this, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. Now, we don't use this terminology a lot, but a goad is basically a stick with a pointy end on it. The nails that are firmly fixed, that's like the end of the stick. It's not primarily a weapon. Don't get me wrong, it certainly could be used as that. But in the hand of a shepherd, it's a tool. It's meant to do something that is helpful. It's not a torture implement or some sort of weapon. It's used to help sheep or oxen or animals in some way move in the right direction. No proper shepherd would use this tool to hurt his animals. No way. It's counterproductive. They're important to him. No proper shepherd would do this. The goat is a tool to direct the sheep, not to harm them. Is it painful? Well, well sure. It could be a little bit painful. But the very small amount of pain, this poking in a sense, is meant to correct a sheep's foolish thoughts about where they should go on their journey, right? They're, they want to go this way, that way, the other way. This goat helps them to stay on the right path. I mean, they don't care where they go. I mean, these guys, as long as it looks good for them, it's worth pursuing. And the goad is used to help them not just run after all their immediate pleasures, usually food, right? He instead says, let you use this back so you can use it properly so we're in the right path and I can direct you in the right way. It's used to save them from far worse pains than this little poking of a stick, it's used to save them from environments that would hurt them, the sheep, to, to save them from other pastures where greedy sheep have already been. Or worse than that, it's used to keep them away from great malicious harm. Maybe something like wolves or other vicious predators. And here, in verse 11, we find that the wise words and collecting, collected sayings of Ecclesiastes is like that goad, that stick. In our journey through life, these words are meant to guide, to direct, to correct, and even to spur us on as we walk the right path under the watch care of God. And that's exactly what he says here at the end of verse 11. He says that these words are given by one shepherd. I, I love this phrase. If, if you have any doubts about the relevance and the biblical nature of Ecclesiastes at all, stop. This man says that these words are ultimately given to us by the one shepherd. Yes, the preacher, Kohelet, he weighed wisdom and he had to study deeply and he had to try things out and experiment and then arrange these sayings and use all the things that God had given him to produce this body of work under the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. But make no mistake, the big A author in all of this is God himself. We're talking about the doctrine or the theology of 
inspiration. This is the truth, a glorious truth, that these words are not only wise words, like so many other wise words that are said throughout the world, but these ones are given to us by the Creator, by God Himself. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We can and must trust these words. Our God has gloriously given them to us. But I want you to notice that he just doesn't use the word God here. I love how he writes this book because he's like constantly doing like two or three or four different things. We know who he's talking about. But check out the word that he uses here. He doesn't say God. He calls him the one shepherd. And this is so significant, especially as we head into the second half of the passage. Some of you know where I'm coming from here, but this is so significant. He shows us the nature of our relationship with God. And it is one in which he is our shepherd, guiding, protecting, nourishing, and saving us. His desire and heart is for the survival and flourishing of his sheep. We know that God is sometimes called a shepherd. If I were to ask you, probably most of you would say, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I know that for sure. Genesis 49 also says, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Psalm 80 verse 1 says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, as he calls out to God. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. But listen to Isaiah 40. 10 through 11. He says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Listen to tenderness here for a second. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Guys, we need to believe the glory of this truth that this did not come down only from men, but is God's word to us, that he has spoken to us very clearly. Our God is shepherding God of steadfast love and care for his people. If I'm just being honest here, I think that most of us believe this truth. We believe that God's the shepherd, but we might not believe the truth about ourselves. So let me just turn it for a moment. I, I want to ask you a personal question. Please don't answer out loud. How do you view yourself before God? That's what I mean. Do you view yourself as a sheep or maybe more as like a, a free agent sports player with, like, with some skills that you have and that you can offer the team? But of course, you see the necessity of a very good and perfect coach that could prepare you for the game. Guys, sheep are dumb. Good players aren't. Sheep are, uh, they need a shepherd to live at all. A good player can easily make his way around the league just fine. Sheep are not highly regarded for all of their abilities, yet players are highly regarded for their abilities. How do you view yourself when it comes to being on Jesus' team? Like, just be honest. Isn't it true that sometimes we're like, you gotta be pretty glad to have me on your team? a pretty good player. But if you see yourself as a sheep, in these words, 
completely dependent on the shepherd for nourishment, for direction, to be preserved or saved, you'll interact with him very differently. You'll recognize your utter need for someone to look out for you, for someone to help you, for someone to care for you, that would pick you up and hold you in his bosom. I would call us then to see ourselves for who we are, guys, sheep, sometimes dumb, sometimes not very many abilities, and yet we look to our shepherd who's given us everything that we need. Let us humble ourselves and seek the help, the care, and the guidance of our great shepherd. If we begin to see ourselves this way, and if we believe what he's been telling us here in this passage, we have our second truth that's been revealed here to us, that God has spoken. He's told us something. If God has spoken through his word, we must realize that we need it for our very survival. We need it to direct us, to correct us when we're going away. We need it for our very survival. We will constantly be bombarded. And you know this, by questions about life and inequities and uh, injustice and the meaningless sometimes experiences and conclusions that we come to about our life. Because as he tells us, often it is hevel. We don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. And a person can get lost in the study and pursuit of figuring out how, how all of the universe fits together. This is exactly what he says in verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, some of you know, and maybe listen to or follow, guys like Jordan Peterson someone who is uh, very provocative and is really after the truth. They're very honest about what they're trying to do, and they seem so close to the truth sometimes and still won't acknowledge that God is the God of the Bible. Um, perhaps some of you enjoy the work of Stephen Hawking. He's passed away now, but he's an absolutely brilliant theoretical physicist and cosmologist who honestly pursued the work of Einstein and all that he had kind of begun. Now, if you don't know about this, it's okay. I, I don't know a lot about it, but I started looking into this. But in his book, A Brief History of the Universe, he attempts to pursue a scheme that would explain all of the universe and where it came from. It's a really fascinating study. In an article in 2011, he had kind of explained this. He really... If, you know, if I can say it this way, he wearies himself with immense struggle and pursuit to understand the theory of everything. In an article of The Guardian, he said this, if we discover a complete theory, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then, we should know the mind of God. If he had just stopped at reason, it would have been great, but like he just betrays himself. For then, we should know the mind of God. Albert Einstein, I mean, he worked his fingers to the bone trying to develop a proper scheme called the theory of everything. He, he never found it, but he never stopped working. As he talked to a young student named Esther Salomon, he said this, I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are just details. Now, he was not a believer, and he will tell you that in his writings, but he is trying to understand the scheme of things. He wants to know how does it all work together. 
I'm not concerned about giving my whole life over to boron or to gold. or I don't care about that. I want to know how it all works together. Where did it come from? Where is it going? Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein wrote many books, if you didn't know that. And to be sure, they studied harder, probably in one year, more than I will ever study in my whole life. But it amounted to nothing, to hevel. Nothing they could grasp was gone. The writer looks at his disciples in verse 12 here, maybe even his literal son, and he says, my son, beware of anything beyond these, and when he's talking about that, he's talking about the things that Ecclesiastes has said about the meaning of life, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. In a letter that he wrote in 1938, Einstein said, most of my intellectual offspring end up very young in the graveyard of disappointed hopes. And still, he himself said that on his deathbed, he was still asking for his latest notes on the theory of everything so he could do his best to try to finish his work. Searching out many schemes will only lead to vexation, to sorrow, and to ultimate misery. And so our author has primed us for the final words in verses 13 and 14. He closes the book with this fatherly advice for the reader. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. That's a signal for us. We're supposed to listen to that. That's him saying, okay, let me tell you what you are to do with all of this. If you have been here for any time and working through Ecclesiastes with us, or maybe you've just read it really well, we know that the preacher all along has been searching and has been trying things out and experimenting and philosophizing and living and even last week showed to the death. We know that we come out with nothing in the end. Life under the sun brings nothing but hevel. This is how he began chapter 1, verse 2. Remember his opening line to his poem? And how he closed the whole of his writing in chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity or hevel, vapor. So since there's nothing to be gained under the sun, what are we to do? Now we've learned from this writer, from the preacher, that we are to enjoy the gift of life. But will this ultimately matter if life under the sun gains us nothing? We as the reader have to ask that question. And that's what this compiler, this editor is doing in these last few phrases. His answer is swift and powerful. Do not live for this life under the sun. Live for the one reality that we know that is over the sun. Live for God. Now, of course, he says it in much better, more thorough and actionable language when he says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And without missing a beat, the author assumes the existence of an all-powerful, just, holy, eternal God who both created man and will hold all mankind accountable for every single thing that he or she has done. Again, he is showing the reader that life is far from meaningless. It is not absurd. If the premise is true, this changes everything, right? What's the premise I'm talking about? 
It's that first great reality I started with today. That reality is that God is. That God exists. That God exists and that he has revealed himself to mankind. Now you can look around at nature, and we should, and we will see that there's an intelligent creator. You can look under a microscope and be amazed what's going on at this tiny, tiny level. Or you can look up at the stars on a beautiful night and see what's out there. Go ahead and put it, then, then you can look at it through, through a lens and you'll see all of the other things. And maybe you look at the telescope and all of a sudden you're seeing even more situations that are going there with stars and planets and other things out there that we have no idea what's going on. It's way too big for us. And when we do this, we recognize there's something and someone that's bigger than us who's created these things. We can, of course, see it through the inclination in our own hearts, in mankind, that there's a right and a wrong. We can see it in our unstoppable desire to worship. But only the Bible will tell us about who this person is and what he requires. And here, the Bible tells us that he is shepherd, verse 11 and 12, and that he is judge, verse 13 and 14. My sermon title, I put it, just kind of put titles each time, but I this was my own title, was Fear the Shepherd Judge, so that we might understand ourselves before him rightly. He says this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now this call isn't just generally to believe in God. This isn't a call to be a sincere worshiper of some God. You know that idea of like, all roads up the mountain lead to heaven. doesn't matter which one you take. As long as you're sincere and you worship, you'll get there. No, 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 no. It's exclusive. This is God and God alone of Ecclesiastes, the God of the Bible. And this fear of God is not some sort of general religiosity that we just go around trying to please over what everyone else thinks is the right thing to do, right? It's rather a fear of God that leads to utter loyalty and happy compliance or obedience to his commands. Why? Why should we do this? Why should we adhere this way? Well, he says, for God is not some disinterested, aloof force of nature. Rather, God is the one who will bring every action into judgment. Your primary concern should be about God Because no one else will judge every action of yours, good, evil, known, hidden. This God is not like the local deity down the street who needs informants to tell him what people are doing. He's not operating on the same amount of knowledge that we collectively have. He knows everything. Yes, he knows the things that a few people know that are maybe your secrets. He knows the secrets that nobody else knows about. Let me go a step further. He knows more about us than we do. He knows our motivations. He understands our passions. He knows what makes us tick. He knows everything. May I remind you, friends, that this is both scary and encouraging. Stay with me for a minute here. What I'm saying is this. We understand this. There are probably things that you and I have done that we don't want anyone else to know about. We are ashamed of them, and we should be. We recognize we certainly don't want to face God for some of the things that we have done. For these things, may I just simply give you a call of grace that we are offered, 
that we can repent to him and find grace in him, asking God to forgive us, trusting him alone to shield us from his wrath. But there are also those things that we wish someone else would see. Anyone anyone been here before? Where, Where you're walking and you're trying to obey God and you do the right thing and no one has any idea that you've done the right thing. In those moments, I can't tell you how many times I have like, I don't know if I can like, I don't X out my good work by my groping or whining or, you know, being bummed about it. But God sees all of those moments. He knows every evil thing and every good thing. Those things which everybody else knows and those things that no one knows. Do you understand what that means here? Yes, we ought to be, uh, you know, concerned about making sure that we confess our sin. Exactly, absolutely, that's exactly right. But the point here is not about being afraid of the judgment. The point here is that there will be a judgment and that God is the one who will sit as judge. That means so much to us. What I'm saying is the point here is not, in this sense, and we'll talk about this in a minute, is not about being afraid of being judged. The point is that there is a judge and that we can know him, that we can find him to be who he says he is. The point is worship. The point is loyalty, wholehearted devotion to him. Now, I'll ask, is there fear involved? Absolutely. Hear me clearly here. Don't think for a minute that I'm trying to downplay the immense nature of God the judge. He is infinite, almighty, all-knowing, holy, just judge. This kind of fear is not just some sort of high amount of respect. Sometimes we think about it this way, and it's, it's right for us to say that we ought to be in awe and reverence of God. But sometimes we talk about that the way that we talk about a good father. I have a great amount of fear and love for my dad. That's a good thing. He's a good man who, who loves Christ and obeys, and he, he led me in so many ways. I have a great deal of honor for him. I want to show him respect and reverence. But I don't have the time to develop this exactly, but if we treat our, our God as we do uh, our Father, and we think that that's a good analogy for how we ought to fear Him, we make a mistake. God is creator. My earthly Father is a created being just like me. We stand in awe and wonder and terror at the immense Godness of who God is. Now remember, that doesn't mean that that fear drives us to hate but rather to love. If we have experienced the love and mercy of God, we can do nothing but respond in joy at his mercy and kindness, which result in thanksgiving and love. As Exodus 34 says, he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I want to ask you, I, I, I talked about fear, a real fear of the godness of God, of his immense character, of the absolute weight of this being. Is your experience one of dread? One of complete fear? One that you say, I don't want to deal with that God who can see my sin and judge me for it. Do you hate him for being almighty and the one who knows all the deepest, darkest secrets that will judge you? Friend, Can I just remind you, if this is you today, you 
may experience the mercy and grace of our God who forgives our sin and calls us to worship and live as his own. Again, I'll say Exodus 34, he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Won't you turn then to this true refuge? Only he can save us from our rightful judgment. There is an answer, and it's found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. For you and me, when he says that we are to fear God and keep his commandments, it's like saying this, hey, don't try to look around you and live up to the standards of all the other people and maybe your friends and all the smart people who are good philosophers and live how they tell you how to live. The best morality that's out there. No, 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 no. You need to live up to the standard that's eternal. There is one above all of these, and that's who you are to be concerned about. Live up to the standards of God. And don't get me wrong, living up to the standards of God does not save you. We know this. Your works cannot purchase your salvation. He's saying that our concern, our fear, should not be placed in what humans say or think about us, but rather our concern should be for what God thinks about us. That's what he does when he calls us to fear God alone. And if we are primarily and totally devoted to him, we will desire to do whatever he says to do. If he's right about all this, what danger is there? The only danger would be to not listen to him. This fear of God leads us to utter loyalty and happy obedience to his commands. If he made the world, if he wrote the software for the world, if he sustains the world by his power, if he's the one day who will judge, he's the one that will judge the world, who should we listen to? Him, God alone. That's why he says, fear God and keep his commandments. This is no arbitrary test. Sometimes we kind of think about this, like, because we write rules, right? Like, and everyone has to kind of fit these rules, and some of them are very helpful, some of them are somewhat arbitrary. We kind of think that God did that. No, 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 no. (laughs) This is no set of arbitrary rules. This is the word of God that tells us how to live, get this, for maximum joy and meaning in this life and the next. So brothers and sisters, how do you see the word of God? How do you see his commands? Because certainly he's not just talking about direct exhortations. He's talking about the whole of the scriptures, about what it talks about to be in him, who God is, all of these things. How do you treat it? Um, How do you obey it? I'll ask this question. Do you love the Bible? I don't know how many of us can honestly say yes to that, that, that question. Do you endure your reading of the Bible? I mean, lots of us, if we're honest, can check the box for our weekly Bible reading. Do you ignore it? Man, Chris, now you're getting a little too strict. I mean, you don't have to read the Bible to be a Christian, right? I'm thankful for a pastor, uh, you, some of you may know him, John Piper, and the attitude on this one. He says something like this. If you have time for breakfast and not time for reading your Bible, stop eating breakfast and read your Bible. Uh, is it really precious to us? Does it mean so much to us that we would take that over food? 
you really believe that it will make us prosper and cause, as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, for us to prosper in all of our ways and that our leaves won't wither? Oh, brothers and sisters, God forgive us for not loving to hear and read and think and obey God's commandments. I find it convicting that he doesn't say, fear God and read his commandments, but he says, fear God and keep his commandments. His words require us to act, to live differently, to truly be changed. And I'll say this, if you think that this is some sort of legalism, I don't want you to remember John Piper's name. I don't care about that. I want you to remember what Jesus said. John 14, 15, Jesus says it just so simply. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is what happens when you've been overtaken by the power of God, understanding who he is, and the immense salvation that has been wrought for you and me who are sinners. I began today talking about two great realities that must fundamentally shape our lives, right? That God is and that God has spoken. Interestingly enough, um, this is not only found in Ecclesiastes, but also in the book of Hebrews. Let me read the first four verses of the book. I just want you to catch these ideas. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, many times, in many ways, like in Ecclesiastes, God spoke. God spoke. There's the two things right away. God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, amen, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We close today with a call to consider the fulfillment of this great truth. Guys, not only does God exist, not only has he spoken through prophets and wise men and kings and shepherds, he has most perfectly spoken to us through the Son, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. He is both shepherd, John 10, and judge, John 5. This truth must be our foundational reality for us to live. To live for this life will gain us nothing. But to live fearing God and keeping his commandments will bring us everlasting joy and satisfaction in God alone. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you exist, that you have spoken to us. We thank you for our brother, the preacher, who has given us these words, and this compiler has put them together, who fears you. We desire to fear you and keep your commandments, Lord. I pray that we would properly fear you so that we'd walk according to your word. May we see it as a great delight, something that we love, that we love to obey because we realize it is not some sort of slavish duty, but rather true joy as you tell us exactly what is meaningful in this life. I pray your blessing for your saints today. Would we consider, would we meditate 
Would we talk about this in our community groups, in our families? Would we meditate it when we wake up at three in the morning, can't sleep? Would you help us to fear you properly? We thank you for your great grace again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.